Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So the city of Surrey is planning for its move away from the RCMP and to develop its own police department, I think tentatively titled right now the Surrey Police Department. And a report by Surrey's general manager of policing transition is actually expected to go to the provincial government in the next four to six weeks. Uh, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth actually needs to approve that move by Surrey, needs to make sure and approve that there is a proper plan in place to ensure uh, the city is with policing that it needs all during this transition period. So what we found out, though, is that that report is apparently going to go to the Public Safety Committee in Surrey, but that committee meets behind closed doors. And it doesn't sound like the public's going to get a chance to take a look at that report. So one city councillor, Linda Annis, is calling for full disclosure before the report is sent to Victoria. She would also, she says, like to see the city hold a referendum to make sure this is what voters want. I'd like to get the facts and uh, present the facts to the people, perhaps uh, in the way of a referendum. I would like to make sure that the public have the facts first so that they clearly understand what the impact is of changing from the RCMP to a Surrey police force. Well, wait a minute. Didn't police, didn't people understand all of that when they voted in the last election? Was this not one of the biggest issues of the last election? So our hot question of the day today is this. Should Surrey City Council hold a referendum so people can vote on the transition to a municipal police force? Do you say yes, we need public input or no? Council has a mandate to do this. Use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. Email me, simi at cknw.com, or go online to Twitter, simisarah980, to cast your vote. Almost three months, that is how long two Canadians have been now detained in China. And that country is suddenly alleging that those two Canadians, former diplomat Michael Kovring and entrepreneur Michael Spaver, were acting together to steal state secrets. Remember, they were arrested back on December the 10th. That was the same week. So right after Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou was arrested here in Vancouver at the request of the United States. She faces fraud charges in the United States having to do with Huawei's business dealings with Iran and whether or not that violated sanctions. This past Friday, Canada had announced that it's going to move forward with the American extradition request for Hmong, but this could take a long time. Uh, Some extradition cases have taken a few years. It was also announced yesterday that Hmong is suing the Canadian government, uh, the border agency, and the RCMP, alleging a breach of constitutional rights. But let's get an update on this. Let's talk about the two Canadians who are at the centre of this, Michael Kovring and entrepreneur Michael Spaver. Uh, Joining us now to talk more about this is Joanna Chu, who's an assistant managing editor of Star Metro Vancouver and also is a friend of Michael Cover. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Did this come as a surprise, these allegations from by China all of a sudden late last week? Mm-hmm. Um, so the new accusations saying that we already knew that they suspected these two men 
had some sort of national security issues, but it was really vague. And now they're saying that uh, Kovig was kind of the leader of stealing intelligence from China and that Faber was like his accomplice or something. And um, from the reactions, it seems like people think that this is quite far-fetched. There's no indications the two men uh, lived in the same city, let alone knew each other. So it seems like what's happening is that Canada formally approved um, Meng Wanzhou's extradition process to go forward, and this might be China's response. So does it look like, I guess, then tit for tat? It could, because what we're worried about is that these men could be accused of very, very serious spying charges. And now it seems like um, the ante has been raised because this would be a very serious spying allegations and they could spend years in jail. So it it does have um, the air of more retaliatory and also threatening kind of tone. What do we know about their condition, Joanna? Like, what do we know about how they're doing? So it doesn't seem to have changed from what we knew before, where they're being interrogated quite frequently and they're kept in rooms that are continually lit up, so it's hard for them to um, rest. And um, last week, they both of them were able to see um, the Canadian consulate, consulate um, for a visit. So at least that, that's a relief because at least they still have access to the Canadian consular officials, even in detention. Right. But unlike the case of Meng Wanzhou, where she's out on mm-hmm. bail, she's free to move around. We've seen her out and about. Mm-hmm. What do we know about the conditions that the two Canadians are being kept in? They're kept in small cells and it looks like they're isolated. And that in Canada would not be appropriate at all for prisoners to be kept isolated, interrogated and not be allowed to rest properly um, with the lights on. So the contrast between what they're going through and what Meng is going through living in her multi-million dollar mansion in Vancouver out on bail is very uh, stark. What has been the attitude then towards Canada in, in China? Is there still a lot of anger about this? Well, actually, like, obviously the leadership, the Chinese leadership is very angry, but I've spoken with um, Chinese people, Chinese friends and and, you know, they, they're worried and afraid of speaking out publicly, of course, because China is a very draconian authoritarian state. Um, but in private, they say that they're very sympathetic to the Canadians and that they realize this is something political going on. Um, in the past, we have seen Chinese nationalism when China had gone into spats with other countries, such as uh, South Korea uh, or France, and people were protesting on the streets against this other country because they felt China was slighted. But um, in this case, uh, there's less of that. There's less of that. But still, is it still a, mm-hmm. like a headline-grabbing story in China as well? The media is very muggled in China, so anything that appears is because state media wants to send a message. And I think the message that state media in China is sending is directed not at domestic, but at international audiences. So they're saying that this is what's happening with youth men, and this is what's happening with uh, Huawei. So what, what's in the media is what the Chinese government wants to project out to the world. So, Joanna, do you think maybe they are ramping up the pressure here? There's been some word that the United States and China are, are kind of potentially close to a trade deal. Do you think it's kind of that they're focusing all their attention on seeing what they can do in this case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think when it comes from Beijing's point of view, they may feel that the U.S., 
right now because the matter in Canada is in the courts. It's not in our um, political system. They may think that the best way to get a deal to get Meng Wanzhou released would be striking some sort of deal with um, President Trump. Um, so we don't know what's happening there, but they may be hoping that as part of a trade deal of U.S. and China, that um, her U.S. dropping its extradition request on Canada will, would be part of it. Okay, so then what is the next step here? Like, what, what's going to happen now? In, in Canada, uh, Meng is going to be back in court in the B.C. Supreme Court in Vancouver on Wednesday. So we can expect a whole bunch of international media uh, to be, you know, descending in Vancouver to cover um, even this. It will, should be a scheduling hearing. Um, we expect that her lawyers will ask for more time. And um, I don't know if you mentioned earlier, but sh- we heard yesterday that Meng, her defense team, is actually filing a civil claim. They're suing right. the Canadian government. They're suing the RCMP and Border Services Agency for allegedly um, not giving her her full rights when they arrested her. Um, so there's, so there's a, a lot more to come on this. On. Yeah, so it seems like we're getting analysis. If you look on the Star Vancouver website, that some lawyers say it was very strategic filing the civil claim. They want to undermine the extradition request using the civil claim. Obviously, Meng does not need the money from a civil suit for financial damages. She's a billionaire. Right. So um, it's some sort of legal strategy to try to undermine the whole thing. All of these different machinations going on here. Uh, Joanna, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. That is Joanna Chu, who's Assistant Managing Editor of Star Metro Vancouver, also a friend of Michael Covrin's. Well, this next story has definitely hit a nerve, particularly with a lot of Surrey residents out there. So Surrey City Councilor Doug Alford, who was elected because he became very well known for talking about policing in that community. Well, he now says that he doesn't expect that Surrey taxpayers are going to be consulted again on the issue of moving to a Surrey police force even though it is going to cost taxpayers more to make that move. So there's this report that is being written right now by the general manager of the policing transition. It's expected to go to Mike Farnworth, the solicitor general, in about four to six weeks or so. So Mike Farnworth needs to approve the move by Surrey away from the RCMP. Essentially needs to make sure that the proper procedures are in place, that the communities in Surrey will be policed properly in this transition period, and that they've got a plan, essentially. So the report will go to Surrey Council's Public Safety Committee, but that committee meets behind closed doors. There's no guarantee that the public's ever going to find out what is in that report. So in light of all of this, you've got another councillor now, Linda Annis, saying, listen, we need full disclosure. We need a referendum on this topic. So there's a lot going on here. Let's chat with Janet Brown now, our Global News senior reporter who's been covering this. Good morning, Janet. Good morning, Simi. Lots of moving parts definitely in this story. Uh, first of all, we heard this morning from Doug Elford, uh, who made some rather surprising comments in an interview I did with him recently. And uh, perhaps we should start off, Simi, by playing part of that interview I did with Mr. Elford, uh, where he made some rather interesting comments about policing in the city of Surrey going from the RCMP to a municipal force. Here is some of what he had to say. Uh, Doug, are you still on board with the transition by the city to a municipal force? I mean, we really don't, we haven't seen the report yet that's going to the province, but you're still on board with that? Oh yes, 100%. Uh, The first council meeting that we had met at, we had uh, voted 
for the transition. So as far as I'm concerned, it, it's, it's going to happen. And uh, we're in the works right now with the plans to get it to the province. And, and uh, basically it's going to be in the hands of the province whether or not it's going to be moved forward. Do you feel, some people have said there should be consultation right now from the public. Would you like to see some consultation taking place? At this point in time, it's not going to make any difference. As I said, we've already uh, made the decision to go ahead with the, uh, the SPD, and uh, I don't feel that consultation at this point in time will make any difference. Sorry, what's SPD? Surrey Police Department. So uh, do you think consultation may be coming later when the public gets a chance to see the report? I will, that remains to be seen. There's going to be a decision point soon. Once the plan is in front of council, council will consider it. And I believe right now I don't, don't foresee consultation. So uh, will the report come to council before it goes to the Solicitor General? I believe it will, yes, through the Public Safety Committee. So the public won't, the general public won't get a chance to see it, though. Then, right? I'm not really aware of how the process is going to work. Um, all I know is that council will probably be considering it in a public safety meeting. And at that time, I'm sure we'll, or you will, the council will get the, in terms of dollars, how much more it may cost taxpayers. Do you, do you expect it to cost more per taxpayer? Well, I think we've been on record as saying there is going to be a cost for the taxpayer for a transition. What that is, we don't know yet. It's being calculated, and once it's in front of us, we'll have a better understanding. If it's too high, I mean, it's hard to say, but if it's too high, would it be something you would be in favor of still? I'm not really prepared to speculate on that right now, because I have to see the numbers first in front of me. Now, Janet, this is really interesting, because that's Doug Elford is somebody who campaigned on this for many years, talking about more policing in Surrey. Whenever there was an incident in Surrey, Simi, you will remember, our listeners will remember, you know, if there was a shooting or whatever there was, he he was the first person on the radio. He was our often called for, quote unquote, more boots on the ground. And uh, in in it's not sitting very well with a lot of people this morning, those comments made by Mr. Elford. First and foremost, opposition councillor Linda Annis heard those comments on our radio station this morning. She immediately uh, fired off a news release. She said she was shocked hearing those comments from Doug Elford. First and foremost, the fact that he thinks there will not be any consultation with the public. And here's some of what she had to say. The public has to be consulted. This is a huge decision for Surrey and potentially with significant costs. I think it's critical that uh, we listen to the uh, people that live in Surrey and make sure that we're doing what they want us to do. Were you surprised to hear Elford say there would be no consultation? Absolutely. Um, uh, I've not heard that uh, said before. I don't think it's the right thing. Uh, the public needs to be consulted. It's a significant decision for Surrey, and I think it's incumbent in council to listen to uh, the people that live in Surrey to ensure that we're doing what they want us to do. So uh, what kind of consultation would you like to see, Linda? I'd like to get the facts and uh, present the facts to the people, perhaps uh, in the way of a referendum, but I would like to make sure that the public have the facts first so that they clearly understand what the impact is of changing from the RCMP to a Surrey police force. Now, Janet, I understand that you've also heard from the Surrey Board of Trade on this. 
We certainly have. We've heard from the CEO, Anita Huberman. She says that the board is firing off a letter immediately to the Solicitor General, Mike Farnworth. First of all, asking for an immediate meeting with him and also asking him not to support a city of Surrey police force. She says, just like Linda Annis, she feels there has been a lack of public engagement. And she says that's really surprising because council recently put together a public engagement task force. And she was assuming and hoping that policing would be part of that consultation. But she says right now, based on Mr. Elford's comments, it it appears not to be going that direction. So a lot of unhappy people in Surrey. And we should also point out, let your listeners know, Simi, I have reached out to Mayor Doug McCallum. We need to hear from him at the end of the day. Do we not on all of this? I would uh, say I am so, told yeah. he is in meetings this morning. Yeah, he's in meetings this morning. And uh, hopefully he will have an opportunity to give me a call this afternoon. And when he does, we will have his uh, comments on the air as soon as possible. Okay. To hear from him and hear what he has to say in response to all of this. So I guess the critical question here is that will that report be made public? Because, I mean, he's all for the move. Nothing's going to change his mind on that. But how much information is the public going to get about this process? And I think at the end of the day, that's correct, Simi. The end of the day, though, I think people want to know how is this going to impact them personally? How much is it going to cost them in addition right. to what they are already paying uh, for policing in Surrey? Surrey is very unique. It line items in, in the tax report that is sent to every homeowner, how much everybody is paying for policing and also firefighting. And uh, not a lot of municipalities do this, and it's very informative. And I know for my household, we are paying nearly $100 a year for the RCMP. And people need to know, I think, how much is that going to increase? Is it going to be $20 with a municipal force? Is it going to be 100 How much more? And, you know, we've heard a lot of numbers thrown around out there that it could be increasing by 10%, maybe up to 30%. But people need to know because at the end of the day, are they going to be willing to support a municipal force if it means several more hundred dollars a year on their tax bill? Right. But let's be clear here too as well, Janet. So the councillors who were all represented or are all voted in under Doug McCallum's party, they all feel they've got the mandate, that the election was the mandate. They do. But, you know, uh, cracks are starting to appear in oh. the armor semi. Uh, last week, we heard from Councillor Brenda Locke. Uh, council as a whole had been invited to the Surrey RCMP detachment to hear from the officer in charge, senior members at the detachment, you know, what they're doing, et cetera, et cetera. I caught up with her after that meeting. And she also suggested that that she would like uh, to have some sort of consultation from the public in terms of moving to a municipal force. And I think it's sounds like a lot of councillors were assuming that consultation would be part of the process. And now, based on what Mr. Elford is saying, it doesn't sound like consultation is going to take place. And, and as you pointed out, too, this report going to Mike Farnworth is coming before council, but behind closed doors in camera at the yeah. Public Safety Committee meeting, that meeting is not held in public, as you pointed out, so rightfully so. So is it eventually going to come before council at a public council meeting? We don't know right now. Uh, will Mr. Farnworth decide to release it to the public? Don't know that either. So still a lot of unanswered yeah. questions. Sounds like it. Okay, Janet, thank you. Thank you, Sim. 
That is Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. If any updates on that story today, she'll have it for us. Well, two big stories out of Ottawa today. One, of course, having to do with the very sudden resignation of Treasury Board President Jane Philpott from Cabinet. We will be talking more about that in this half hour. We'll be chatting with Mercedes Stevenson, uh, who, of course, is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block. That's coming up in this half hour. Uh, Right now, though, we're going to talk about the other big story, and this has to do with China and Canada. Canada, because there are two Canadians who have been detained in China for nearly three months. And all of a sudden, China is now saying that those two, former diplomat Michael Kovrig and entrepreneur Michael Spavor, were acting together to steal state secrets. In essence, they are now being accused of espionage. So what is going on here? So to break this down a little bit more, we're joined now by Dr. Stuart Prest, who's a political science instructor at Simon Fraser University. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, good afternoon. My pleasure. I'm going to start with the story about China and Canada. This ramping up, is that what this is, like a ramping up of the pressure on Canada? I think that's one way to see it, yeah. This, the timing of the the announcement of, the, of these accusations, it seems it's um, clearly meant to signal that it's uh, uh, a response to the uh, the announcement that the extradition hearing against um, Meng Wanzhou can go ahead. So here we have this this response, and uh, the uh, Chinese government did not say that explicitly, but uh, the the timing seems strongly indicative that it's intended as a another uh, attempt to increase the uh, increase the temperature and then the pressure on the Canadian government. And now we also have this lawsuit that uh, Meng Wanzhou is suing the Canadian government. What is that all about? Well, I think. So we can take a couple of things for, from that. Uh, one, there's this, uh, it seems pretty clear that uh, uh, Meng Wanzhou and her, her defense is going to be well-resourced and and, uh, and resourceful. That This is going to be a, a multi-front uh, uh, battle. It's not just going to be fighting the, uh, the extradition order itself. Uh, it's going to be looking for any opportunity to... Uh, to um, uh, push back against uh, the Canadian government, both for herself at the same time as this larger international story is going on. So it, it really uh, shows that it's going to be a uh, uh, well-resourced and a multi-front uh, struggle with the legal and, and political uh, dimensions to it. Does this just leave Canada continually stuck in the middle? Like, what kind of say do we have? Well, we are... Uh, in a sense, a bit stuck. Yeah, we th- these processes are now in motion, and uh, they do have to, to play out. So the, the this civil claim will uh, work its way through the courts. At the same time, the extradition uh, uh, hearing will will take place, and uh, and so those are going to be uh, taking place according to procedures of, of rule of law in Canada. And so final decisions on extradition uh, will fall on the, the Attorney General's desk. But um, up until that point, uh, we sort of have to wait and see. And uh, of course, we can, uh, the Canadian government can continue and should continue to push for access to the, uh, the to Canadian um, detainees in uh, China, make sure that they have access to consular services and are being treated well. So that's going to be something else that uh, Canada needs to do. But um, it doesn't seem like there's any uh, quick way out of this on, on any of these fronts. No, it doesn't. And, and Stuart, let's be honest here, because the Canadian government is, this is a very sensitive time for the government, is it not? Because it is itself engulfed in a lot of problems right now. Well, absolutely. There's this uh, uh, remarkable parallel between 
what's happening with uh, Ms. Meng and uh, what's happening in Ottawa around SNC-Lavalin and the resignation of, of Jody Wilson-Raybould. So we have the government in this uncomfortable situation that on the one hand, it's insisting that the rule of law is cannot be subject to any kind of political uh, pressure. But at the same time, the government is fending off the uh, suggestion that it, it uh, uh, imposed what they saw as appropriate pressure, but pressure nonetheless on the then Attorney General to to make a decision that would uh, work out what they saw in their their favor politically. That's I mean that's hard to reconcile those two positions. Obviously, there's different sort of logic behind them, different situation, but uh, that's an uncomfortable parallel to be uh, caught up in. Right. Is this then, do you think, undermine like what's happening in Ottawa then with all the situation around Jody Wilson-Raybould and now we've got Jane Philpott's resignation like less than an hour ago. Does this kind of undermine the case and the ongoing kind of negotiations with China? I think it makes it, uh, I don't know if it undermines it completely, but it, it makes it more difficult and it, it gives a sort of an opening to sort of whataboutism, as it's called, where any time Canada mentions that it's uh, following the, the procedures established for uh, an extradition hearing right, like this, then China can turn and point to, to SNC-Lavalin and say, well, what about this? And so it's, um, it, it's not a, a reason to not follow the procedures of the, uh, uh, that we've established, but it is... Um, it makes the the political maneuvering uh, more difficult and more uncomfortable. And uh, and again, there's no easy way out of the, this situation. I think on any front. No, it doesn't. Now, so with extradition hearings, though, that process can take a long time, can't it? Yeah, it's not going to be. Uh, uh, overnight or anything like it. There are uh, a couple of different opportunities to appeal along the way. And so uh, we're, we're getting the signal that Ms. Ming's uh, counsel is, go- is going to uh, look for any avenue that they have to, to try to, to push back. So we can expect this to take quite some time. And we'll he'll hear more about uh, the U.S.'s involvement uh, along the way and whether this has uh, uh, been politicized on that end. And so there's, there's going to be different avenues, and I, I'm sure they're going to try to pursue each one. Right. Okay. And what do you make then of the, speaking of Canada, the, the latest situation now here with Jane Philpott resigning? Well, it's a, it's a remarkable development. I did, I did not expect this. I don't know if there are many people who did. It, uh, it really is um, suggesting that within the Liberal caucus itself, at a fairly senior level, uh, Ms. Philpott was the uh, the, the president of the Treasury Board, which is one of the senior most positions in cabinet. And she is uh, suggesting she cannot, or not suggesting, she's straight out saying she cannot continue to sit in cabinet because she is uncomfortable with what uh, uh, the, the revelations we've had around uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould and the pressure she uh, experienced as uh, attorney general. And uh, so that means that at a senior level, and we don't know, we really don't know how deep it goes within the Liberal caucus, but there is this uh, division, and that's very difficult for a party to to uh, work through. So it suggests either there's going to be uh, uh, an attempt to sort of batten down the hatches and sort of whoever is on the uh, sort of... And it almost seems like maybe they're breaking into teams, but the sort of those who are supporting the, the prime minister's office will, will hunker down. But then there, there may be, and we don't know, if there's going to be other MPs who uh, indicate that try to signal that they are not uh, in agreement with this, this strategy. Right. So uh, this and if that's the case, the um, 
the, the uh, PMO may just have to think about a, a different approach. The current one no just kidding. isn't working. The current one is definitely not working. Have we ever had a situation like this before? Like, I don't even remember it being uh, this bad when it came to like the whole Lucien Bouchard, Brian Mulroney situation. I mean, that's the kind of precedent we're going back to. And, and, and even then, uh, I, I believe Bouchard was, was fired and not, it did not resign. And obviously, the fallout was significant. But we're going to sort of classic moments in Canadian history that are taught in textbooks for grasping for, for precedents to, to compare this to. This is a significant development. Certainly is. All right, Dr. Press, thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure. That is Dr. Stuart Press, political science instructor at Simon Fraser University. We were talking about the China-Canada situation, and now, of course, mixing its way into that is this deepening controversy involving the Trudeau government and SNC-Lavalin. I think it's safe to say that as a society, we are more health conscious than we have ever been. We know about sodium levels and sugar content and trans fats. We talk about making sure that we get all our fruits and vegetables. I mean, we are, in essence, much more concerned about our health than at any time in modern history. And yet, go to any fast food restaurant and that message pretty much goes unheeded. It's an oxymoron, really, that we are healthier in our home lives, but in public when we eat fast food, a new study shows that fast food menus are actually less healthy than they were 30 years ago. Well, Dr. Megan McCrory is a research associate professor in the Department of Health Sciences Programs and Nutrition at Boston University and has been studying this issue. She joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hello. Thank you for having me. So has fast food actually gotten worse in the last 30 years? Uh, Yes, I'm afraid it has. How did that happen and how is it worse? Well, uh, in several ways. So the menus have a lot more items on them to begin with. And when there's more items, that means greater variety, and that's something that we're attracted to. So we may tend to go back more often or just find more things to order that are of interest to us. Uh, Another thing is that the portion size of the items has gotten a lot bigger, and especially for entrees and dessert items. It hasn't really changed for side items like uh, French fries. And the calories that go with the portion size has also gotten a lot bigger for entrees and sides and desserts. So the biggest change that we saw was in desserts from 1986 to 2016. The calories went up by a whopping 186 calories total. Um, The calories of entrees like burgers and sandwiches and even breakfast sandwiches on average, those went up by uh, 90 calories, so almost 100. Wow. The sodium, the sodium also increased. So the sodium is the, the nutrient that uh, contributes toward high blood pressure. So that's something that we don't want to see increase. Right, but what happened to all of our thinking about, oh, trans fats are bad, we're not going to use those animal fats anymore, we're not going to use those trans fats. Mm -hmm. How does that translate into the food actually becoming uh, more fattening for us? Well, we didn't examine fat in this study. So the increase in calories is um, mainly due to the, the larger size, the larger portion size. Right. Okay. But then what, how do we account for the sodium levels increasing? Uh, well, the sodium is in part due to the larger portion size, just because people are getting, people are getting more sodium. So they're consuming 
uh, sorry, people are getting a larger size, so they're consuming more portions, more sodium. Uh, but we did find that uh, even after we accounted for this increase in size, there was still higher sodium in both the entrees and the sides. And that's something we're looking into. We don't actually know why. In part, it could be because there's just a lot more items in, the two, in 2016. Uh, perhaps the types of side dishes and entrees are uh, the more salty kind. I, I'm actually going to be looking into that to see if we can figure out why that's going on. That is so interesting. So even though like we're, there's more like grilled chicken items, like there's more grilled items that have the appearance of looking healthy, is it just that the portion sizes are just still too big? Yes, that's correct. So um, if the portion sizes were smaller, then the calories would be less, the sodium would be less, and it wouldn't, they wouldn't be as unhealthy. So uh, we're just, the, it's the size. The food supply everywhere, the, uh, the portion size is getting larger throughout the food supply. So fast food isn't the only place that that's happening. It's just, uh, I guess you could say it's something that's happening in fast food and everywhere. So essentially, if, they, if we scaled down on portion sizes, we'd be a lot better off. Definitely, yes. And that's hard to do. Um, well, it's, the, it's something that the restaurants could do if they wanted to. It would probably be expensive for them to do that. But if they offered smaller portions, um, perhaps people would be able to order smaller portions. Um, if people go with a friend, they can maybe try to split the French fries with a friend instead of having the entire order for themselves. So that, I think the restaurants could do a lot. Uh, but people can also try to eat smaller portions at restaurants. It's, it's a, hard, though, because it is. People, are going, people are going to have a large portion and to get a bargain, to get a lot for their money. And they, they go with certain expectations. They do. It's such a contradiction, though, it yeah. seems like. The one area where we're actually getting more for our money is at fast food restaurants, where everywhere else we're getting less for our money. That's true. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. True, that's true. 
Such a weird one. Dr. McCrory, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. That is Dr. Megan McCrory, who is at Boston University and the lead researcher on this report. Life, it seems, has a trajectory. Most of us think that it works in a pretty similar way, right? You go to school, you get an education, and then you work for like four decades or so. And then in your 60s, you settle down and retire. That all sounds pretty familiar, right? Well, our next guest says that we have to stop thinking like that, that we need to make more of our longer and healthier lives, and that we all need to stop fretting about getting older. Well, it sounds pretty good to me. Carl Honoré has written a book called Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives, and he joins us now to talk about us and our attitudes. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. What got you thinking about this topic? Well... it's age, right? I mean, I think we all have a moment when suddenly the number starts to weigh really heavily on our shoulders. And the moment of truth came to me when I was at a ball hockey tournament and, you know, playing well, having a great time, leading my team into the semifinals. And then just by chance, I discovered that I was the oldest player at the tournament. (laughs) And something about that that, that, that news, that knowledge just hit me like a sack of bricks, you know? And I began to think, I began hearing all kinds of questions in the back of my mind, you know, should, do I belong here, right? Are people laughing at me? Am I the hockey equivalent of the 50-something guy with a 20-something girlfriend? And, it, and I began to play less well. I began to you know, play like, I guess, what I imagined an older person was. And, and that was, for me, a, a moment of epiphany after that tournament. I just thought, well, why? Why should I feel so ashamed, so guilty, so held back by that number on the birth certificate? And that was kind of the starting point for writing this, this book, because I just felt, like a lot of people do, I think, nowadays, that aging is a... It's a game of right. you know, loss, decline. It's something we feel bad about on every score. And I wanted to see if there was a, a good news story to tell. And the good news is that I found that there's a very good news story to tell about growing older nowadays. Okay, so you're saying essentially that we second-guess ourselves when it comes to our age. I think so. I think that we hear a little voice in the back of our minds, and it, it's often whispering, I'm too old for this, right? So you're thinking, well, I'm 40, I'm too old to launch a startup. I'm 50, I'm too old to learn a new language. I'm 60, I'm too old to take up kite surfing. Or I'm 70, I'm too old to fall in love again. And the truth is that that is not true, right? Obviously, people change as they grow older, and some things we lose along the way, but many other things get better and other things stay the same. And really what I'm trying to say in the book is that we need to move away from being boxed in and cubbyholed by the number on our birth certificate and try and design whatever age we are, whether we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, 70s, 80s, to design the life that works best for us rather than feeling that we have to follow some kind of script yeah. that's been handed down by, through the generations or pushed upon us by the media or by other people. Okay, so what is the good news that you found when you were doing this? Well, my view of aging was that it just, it was all downhill from basically 35, right? Uh, but in fact, there's so many things that do, do surprisingly get better. I mean, one thing is that you get older and you have more self-confidence, right? You, that, you have that ease in your own skin that you don't have so much in your 20s and you worry much less about what other people think. The famous agony aunt, Ann Landers, had a wonderful quote. She said that at 20, we worry about what other people think about us. At 40, we stop worrying about what other people think of us. At 60, we realize that other people are never thinking about us at all anyway, right? <laughs> and I think there's a, it, that speaks to that kind of lightness, I think, that comes upon you. And I'm now 51 myself, and I feel it. You know, I just feel less held back, less beholden to what other people think. You know, if I'm going to want to wear a, a raffish hat or, you know, change jobs or, do, you know, do, I'll just do it, right, in a way that I think that I, would, I know I would not have done so much in my 20s and 30s. And another thing that's, that really 
blew me away in terms of surprise about how things can actually get better is that we have a, a narrative in our culture that tells us that older is sad, right? It's all about kind of loneliness and sad and the miserable old cantankerous old person, right? But the truth is, if you look at the numbers, that the adult age group that reports in Canada and elsewhere around the world, the highest levels of life satisfaction and happiness is not the under 30s, right? It's, yeah. it's, people over 60, it's the people over 60, right? And yet the culture constantly bombards us with this, this idea that old equals sad, old equals miserable, old equals, you know, cranky, all that grumpy right. old person, all those stereotypes that, that box us in. And, and of course, I'm just scratching the surface. There's so many other things that can get better. People, work performance improves, productivity goes up, uh, creativity holds and gets better for a lot of people. We have often fewer relationships in later life, but they're often deeper, richer, more nourishing, they're stronger. You know, there's just so much out there to look forward to. And I, I wanted to take down this idea that the cult of youth, essentially, right. that, that younger is always better and that there's nothing to look forward to because it's just patently untrue. Now, you, you, I know you talked to a lot of people and you found a lot of people who had lived like longer, happy, healthy lives. What was the common denominator for those people? What was the secret? Well, I think, you know, one of the things that people... We, and we do hear this now. Like you can't say we don't in, in the culture. We're always being told the, the, that basic recipe, you know, exercise, eat a healthy diet, drink in moderation, don't smoke, all those obvious things. But the thing that really jumped out for me was how much attitude to aging was crucial. Because nowadays, our really big problem is not aging. It's ageism, right? It's that negative stereotype about growing older. Because they've shown very clearly that if you have a downbeat, unfavorable view of aging – then you're going to age less well, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be more likely to develop uh, cognitive problems like maybe dementia. You're going to recover less well from illness. You're going to move more slowly, think more slowly. Uh, all the things that you essentially the, 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 the grim view of aging becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So one of the common threads I found among people who were, you know, aging well, aging on their own terms, aging boldly, to echo the title of my book, was that they had an upbeat view of aging. You know, they not a kind of Pollyanna, oh, it's all going to be a land of milk and honey. They understand, as I do, and as anyone who's done any kind of work on aging knows, that certain, some things you lose along the way. You know, your body's not going to work as well um, as yep. it did, you know, in your 60s as it did in your 20s, right? That's just always <laughs> yeah. going to be the way. Everything hurts, though. But at the though. same time, they have an upbeat. They, they, they see the upbeat as well. So they see the rough, they yeah. accept the rough, embrace it, but they also take the smooth and run with it. And that's the really defining characteristic, I think, of people who are aging It's well so and hard, though. Boldly. It's so hard, Carl, to stay positive like that, though, because as you're saying, yeah, your body changes and all of a sudden things are hurting when you get up in the morning. You're like, that never used to happen. So we see the physical signs and we feel that. It must be, it's so hard for people to kind of break out of that. Oh, no, no, this is okay. I'm going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm, it's, again, it's not something that you just snap your fingers and one day you wake up, you know, full of uh, sunny optimism for the future if you've been a very downbeat view of, of, of aging. Of course not. It's a process. But I think one of the things to hold on to here is that the changes, that, that the un unwelcome changes that come upon us tend to come upon us very gradually, right? You don't just wake up one morning with aches and pains. They sort of develop over time, and, and not everybody will suffer from exactly the same aches and pains. One of the things I did for the book was wear uh, what's called an aging suit, which puts 30 years on your age. And that was, to me, horrifying, right? Because it just gave you every, it was like the full English breakfast of, of bad aging. You had Ooh. everything was wrong with you and it gave you macular degeneration. You couldn't hear anything. You couldn't move. It was just, it was a nightmare. And I thought when I first wore that suit, I thought, goodness me, I'm barking up the wrong tree here. Aging really is a nightmare. But of course, the aging suit gives a false view of aging for one, one reason being that not everybody suffers 
suffers from every ailment that comes along with aging. But secondly, you have all that time to get used to it, to adjust. You know, I let's go back to ball hockey with me, right? I don't have the strength, the speed, and the stamina I did when I was in my 20s, but I'm still loving the game. I've adjusted the way I play. I maybe take more time to recover, but I I look forward to ball hockey as much at 51 as I did at 21, right? And that's the key. It's kind of a lot of it comes down to, to mindset, I think. Interesting. So can we do this though? Like, because you're t- retiring in our we 60s, you're saying, what do we need to do to change this? We're not just going to retire in our 60s anymore. We have to be thinking beyond that. Exactly. And I think that's a, that's a, liber- it's a frightening thing in a sense because it's changed, but it's also immensely liberating. We've inherited a real rigid life path. You alluded to it in your introduction, the kind of learning education in our youth. Yeah. You know, parent- parenting for many people that are working in their middle years and then this pensioned retirement or rest at the end. And that just doesn't make sense anymore. It worked in a world where people, you know, retired in the early 60s and then probably lived three or four more years and then checked out. That, you know, people retiring in their 60s now are looking at living in Canada, a good chance of living 20, 25, 30 years more. So what do we do with that? And one of the things that I'm arguing in the book, and one of the things I think I see happening more and more in the culture is that we're throwing out that rigid three-step life path and we're creating something much more fluid. So we're saying you, you don't just learn in your teens and 20s. You carry on learning throughout your life. You, know, you don't just care for people or do volunteering in your pension years. You do that throughout your life. You work throughout your life as well, but not always you know, full time. There'll be times right. when you're going to work longer hours, times you're going to dial it down. You know, later in life, especially very later in life, you're, probably, you're not going to be doing an 80-hour week, right? But you might want to do an 18-hour week, right? Or, or, you know, so I think it's, it's just perspective is what you're saying. Doing. Uh, I'm sorry. It's perspective, is what you're saying. It's like we just need we need to change how we look at these things. We do. We need a completely new lens when it comes to thinking about aging. And I'm a natural optimist, and I think that we will get there. And we're taking the first steps. But you know, we're talking about turning around a, a super tanker here. But the, the, the upside of all of this is that we are actually, I think, entering a golden age of aging. This has never been. There has never been a better time to grow older in human history than now, right? For so many reasons, better technology, better medicine. Uh, you know, there are just so many things that make growing older easier, better, more fun, and easier to do, to do boldly. And one of them, which I think we maybe don't talk about enough these days, is the, just the demographic shift, right? There are more and more older yeah. people in Canada, say, every year. And that changes things. It changes the media landscape. It changes what you see when you walk around Vancouver or Victoria. It changes what, changes what you see on social media. And that's beginning to trickle now into how we feel about aging, I think, because we're seeing more and more examples of people who aren't you know, putting on elasticated um, trousers and sitting in a, in a rocking chair or, you know, and, and they're, they're going out there and they're taking up kite surfing in their 80s. Or, yeah. And so there are these role models that are saying, you know what, aging doesn't have to be a millstone or a game of loss. It can be a whole range of things. And, and one other thing I want to just underscore before we sign off is that what we want to avoid is creating a new set of pressures on people to age in a particular way, right? Because not everybody right. can age the same way. Not everybody can be Helen Mirren, right? Or, or um, Clint Eastwood or, or George Clooney or, or Nancy Pelosi or, or David Attenborough, right? Whoever, not everybody yeah. can be that or, or would even want to be, right? I think what we need to be moving towards, and I do think we're going that way now, is, is a much more broad spectrum of opportunities for people. People can choose their own life path. If you want to grow older and that to you is going to mean just doing a bit of gardening later on and playing with the grandkids, then that's fine. You don't have to climb Kilimanjaro, right? That sounds like my retirement right there. Not the Kilimanjaro, the gardening and the playing with the grandkids. Listen, Carl, thanks so much for your time on this today. 
Thanks. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate that. That is so fascinating. That's Carl Honoré. The book is called Boulder, Making the Most of Our Longer Lives. And if his name sounds familiar to you, it's no surprise. Uh, His previous book, he's an international bestselling author. His previous book was In Praise of Slow. Remember that? The, The slow movement? Yeah, that is the guy who pretty much came up with that whole idea. A significant federal provincial announcement made this morning in Victoria. The federal government says it's committing more than $5 million to understand, prevent, and try to disrupt gun and gang violence in BC. Have a listen to Bill Blair, the Minister of Border Security and Organized Crime Reduction, making that announcement in Victoria just in the past hour. Today, I am very pleased to announce the very first of the provincial agreements for this funding, and that $5.3 million will be provided immediately to the province of British Columbia through the Gun and Gang Violence Action Fund. This significant new funding will be allocated at the community level to support existing initiatives, as well as to introduce new initiatives focusing on prevention and intervention. I'm quite confident that this will enhance efforts to prevent, disrupt, and combat gun and gang violence in British Columbia and increase education and prevention. All right, that is Bill Blair. Meanwhile, BC's Public Safety Minister, Mike Farnworth, says that money is going to be spread out among different programs, including schools and policing, to take action against what he calls our province's, quote, unique gang culture. Some of this new funding will also be used to acquire a provincial prefabricated firearms lab, enhance analysis of recovered firearms, and help provide timely province-wide certification analysis and tracing of firearms. All right, well, that all sounds good, but we need somebody to help translate all of this for us now. So we're joined by Richard Zussman, our Global News online legislative reporter. Hi, Richard. Hi, Simi. Okay, so what exactly does this mean? It's $5 million. Where is that going to go? What's it going to do? Yeah, so what it's going to do is go into different communities. And, you know, we heard a lot of vagities today, and you heard that in the uh, comments from both Bill Blair and Mike Farnworth. But part of it is building a plan now. And, and it stood out to me, like it sounds like it stood out to you, this idea of our unique gang culture here in British Columbia. Uh, it's been a priority issue for this NDP government. It's been a priority for governments for a long time to combat gang violence. And it seems like the money is going to be allocated uh, specifically based on programs that already exist in many cases, but also targeted towards different areas. So uh, no doubt Surrey will be an area that that will be targeted. Uh, just look at the people that were at the event today. There were two Surrey uh, MPs there, including uh, Gordy Hogue. Uh, there were also a number of uh, Surrey uh, MLAs who came to the event as well, including Minister Ginny Sims. So, uh, you know, we we know we've talked a lot about the issues of Surrey around gang violence, and no doubt there'll be a priority there in terms of funding current programs, but also trying to create. Uh, continue to create this comprehensive plan to deal with the issue. Uh, we were reminded today that Premier Horgan made a $31.3 million announcement in the fall of 2017. That is separate money. Uh, that was for more boots on the ground as well as a more concerted effort to address gang violence. And this is just another step as part of a federal program to address, you know, obviously an issue that's of huge concern to people living in these communities where, uh, you know, this gang culture has taken over in some senses. Yeah. So how quickly will this money be distributed and have they said how like where who's going to get what yeah so it goes over two years it's up to the province about who gets what and where it goes the province hasn't decided yet uh, exactly where it's going to go uh 
basically this is just the feds cutting uh, Victoria a check and saying, here, you go ahead and, and implement this the best you know how uh, based on uh, the work that you've done on the ground and the understanding you have of the, of the unique gang culture as they described it. So uh, we don't yet know exactly where it's going to go, Simi. We do know it's going to uh, be put in place over the next uh, two years, how quickly it takes place. Again, we're still looking at this uh, funding that came in in the fall of 2017. So uh, don't expect things to move particularly quickly. It takes time to yes. allocate, to decide, to make decisions. Uh, and we're still looking for that big chunk of cash that was already promised by the province. We've seen some of that. Pro- you know, we've seen programs implemented and money being put into programs. You know, we've seen a, a reduction of the wait list for those, you know, peer mentorship programs that have been uh, quite successful in terms of, uh, you know, young people who've gotten involved in gangs, getting them into peer mentorship to try to get them out of gangs. All of that's been funded, but we're still sort of waiting for some of the core principles around, you know, more uh, police on the ground and and trying to, again, get at the core of this gang issue. All right. Sounds good. Thank you for that, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Amy. That's Richard Zussman, our Global News Online legislative reporter, just filling in some of the details in regards to the federal government coming out to B.C. to make this announcement. A shocker out of Ottawa in the last half hour. Treasury Board President, former Indigenous Affairs Minister, former Health Minister Jane Philpott has resigned from the federal cabinet, saying she has lost confidence in the way the Trudeau government has dealt with the fallout of the SNC-Lavalin situation. Let's get more on this now. We're joined by Mercedes Stevenson, who is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block. Mercedes, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. What is the mood like in Ottawa right now? Absolutely stunned, shocked. Uh, This is a massive blow to the Trudeau government. Jane Philpott, one of the most respected ministers in this government, uh, respected by the Indigenous communities she worked with, respected by her cabinet members, also, by the way, a good friend of Jody Wilson-Raybould's. Uh, and she had tweeted some support of Jody Wilson-Raybould at the time for her resignation, a picture of her with her arm around um, Ms. Wilson-Raybould. And people in cabinet had said, you know, Jane Philpott can do that because she's so respected um, and she's demonstrating her friendship. Well, now it looks like obviously there's more to it because what is in this letter is a body blow to the government. She is saying she has lost confidence in the government, that she cannot and will not publicly defend the decisions made by this cabinet when it comes to intervening in the SNC-Lavalin criminal case. Uh, She believes that it is wrong, essentially, is what she's saying, and says she can't sacrifice her personal ethical principles to be a part of this government anymore. I mean, it doesn't get any worse when a cabinet minister resigns. Usually, we don't really know why. We still don't really know why Jody Wilson-Raybould did. Uh, She laid it out in very plain and very devastating language. Was there any indication of unhappiness? Like, in the weeks since we've heard Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony, we had a number of cabinet ministers coming out and defending, you know, the prime minister and the approach to this. Was there any indication that there were some who did not agree with that approach? Yeah, she would not defend it. We chased her even this morning, and she refused to answer questions about it. And when it first happened and we chased her uh, after a cabinet meeting, she looked very emotional and very upset. And that's not like her. Um, This is somebody who is known to have a very strong moral compass. She's known to be very tough, very intelligent, very competent on her files. Um, And it was very clear that she did not want to talk about it. And I think four different reporters, three or four different reporters this morning asked her about it. And she kept saying, I'm not here to talk about this. And then, boom, this bombshell of a letter. Uh, But I can tell you that there's been discontent around the cabinet uh, and among Liberal caucus, people who have been listening to what's coming out, especially with Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony last month, 
pardon me, last week, and um, their, their jaws have been dropping uh, because they can't believe the allegations that are being made. She's very close to Jody Wilson-Raybould, so it raises a couple of questions. What did Wilson-Raybould tell her? What did she discuss in Cabinet or left her with the impression that she did not have confidence in this government? And what happens next? Because if Jane Philpott has left and she was a cornerstone of this government, does that mean that the door will open and other people might consider leaving Cabinet? Right. And tomorrow we expect to get more on this. Isn't that right? Gerald Butts is supposed to be testifying. He's actually testifying on Wednesday. Right. Uh, but I I'd imagine this will still be there will be more on this in some way or another tomorrow. Um, but also uh, the clerk of the Privy Council is back. Uh, he, he is one of the people who Jody Wilson-Raybould says gave her veiled threats if she did not comply. Uh, and I'd expect that there's going to be even more pressure from the opposition now to hear everything from Jody Wilson-Raybould about why she resigned, what were the two conversations she had with the Prime Minister right before she pulled out of Cabinet. Uh, but this letter from you know somebody who was not involved, who's simply saying, I cannot stand by and watch this happen. I cannot support this ethically. Um, from someone who's so respected in Liberal circles, it I don't know what the yeah. Prime Minister does next, but he's certainly in a predicament. That's what I was wondering, too. Like, what could the Prime Minister or his minions possibly do here? Because that's there was a bit of a whisper campaign against Jody Wilson-Raybould, wasn't there? There was, and that turned a lot of people off. There yeah. was a lot of people in the Liberal caucus who really didn't like that. They said, you know, this is supposed to be a feminist government um, and pro-Indigenous people, and, and now you have someone, because they resigned for, or at least, you know, stood up to what they saw as inappropriate pressure, and these implications that there's somehow, and it, it was made in some cases by the Prime Minister himself, that she didn't do her job, that maybe she was somehow incompetent. That really rankled a lot of people who knew Jody Wilson-Raybould. Some would say, yes, she is very tough, and she can be difficult to get along with, but it's because she's standing up for what she thinks is right and she's having a policy argument. Uh, and it really didn't go down well in a lot of liberal circles. They didn't like that whisper campaign and they saw it as being very counter to their narrative and it's damaged them publicly as well. Yeah. Do we know where the Prime Minister is today? Yes, he is in PEI. He was out there making an announcement this morning. In fact, we were questioning him about some of what his um, Attorney General said on the West Block yesterday where he basically said, uh, depending on the circumstances, elections and politics could be a reason to intervene in a criminal prosecution. Oh, he would not rule that out. Uh, and he was snowed in last we heard. He was not able to leave PEI because of the snowstorm. So we have been trying to track him down. We're looking for his plane. We're contacting his people. Um, as you can imagine, it's silence right now because yeah. they're trying to figure out what to do with this. No kidding. Mercedes, thank you so much. We'll let you get back to it. Thanks. That is Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global News and host of the West Block. Lots of discussion today about the first part of the documentary, Finding Neverland. It aired on HBO last night. And it was, of course, about Michael Jackson. And it contained new allegations against the pop superstar. Allegations that were shocking and disturbing and tough to listen to. And I know because I watched it and I felt all of those things as I was watching it. It essentially alleged that he was a sexual predator who preyed on young boys in his circle that he had around him. Now, the second part of that documentary is going to be aired today, but it has prompted a lot of discussion about uh, Michael Jackson's legacy, about his music, should it even be played on the radio anymore? It has been uh, very contentious, to say the least. We wanted to talk more about it now. So Alan Cross joins us, Global News music commentator and host of the Ongoing History of New Music on CFOX. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. That was a tough watch last night, wasn't it? Oh, it really was. Like I felt kind of physically ill at times listening to what those two men had to say. 
Well, and that's what I keep thinking about today. What do these guys have to lose or have to gain by being so graphic in the descriptions of what happened to them as children in the company of Michael Jackson? And what do you think the reaction to that has been? I know there's been like a fierce kind of um, uh, pushback on it, but overall, how do you think it's been received? Well, I think because we're living in a different era uh, with Me Too and people like R. Kelly and people like Ryan Adams and people like Harvey Weinstein, it's, there's, there's a different level of tolerance and a different level of believability to hearing victims out when it comes to this kind, these kinds of abuses. We, all our rage and all our anger, all our concern is being amplified by social media. And even though we had known for decades that Michael Jackson was, was weird and creepy, I mean, his, he, we called him Wacko Jacko, uh, the guy yeah. with the chimpanzee and the elephant man bones and hanging out with Liz Taylor and the hyperbaric chamber and all those things. Uh, there were always hints that he was a weirdo. And I think now we are willing to embrace the facts a little bit more than yeah. we were 15 years ago. I think that's so true. I mean, I watched it last night with my 21 year old daughter. And as we're, as it's unfolding, she turns to me and she said, what was the matter with people? Like, how could you not see the clues of what was going on? You know, well, yeah, especially with the parents. I know, parents. I know. And I said to her, I don't know. Like, I guess it was a different time, you know, always having the young boys around. Like, we would definitely look at that differently today than we did 30, 40 years ago. Uh, you know, 100%. Um, now, that being said, let's just put this into a slightly different context. People love forgiveness. They love an opportunity for a comeback. They love to see people have a second act. And you can do just about anything and receive that sort of absolution, except yeah. child, um, child abuse. Uh, there is no walking back from that. There is no excuse for that. There is no redemption from that. You are in that bucket of repulsion for the rest of your life and beyond. Uh, and you cannot, cannot be rehabilitated in the eyes of, of the world. Let's take a look at Gary Glitter, who is a big, right. big pop star, glam pop star in Britain in the early parts of the 1970s. And his song, Rock and Roll Part Two used to be a giant sport anthem all over the world. He was since convicted and jailed of on all kinds of pedophilia charges in Southeast Asia. And when was the last time you heard Rock and Roll Part Two at a sporting event? Never. Never. Um, there is another band uh, from the UK called Lost Prophets, who had a lead singer named Ian Watkins. He did some terrible terrible, terrible things to the baby of an acquaintance, and he's now in jail uh, for the rest of his life. And uh, while the rest of the band was completely innocent, uh, no one ever wants to hear anything from Lost Prophets again because it reminds them of, of singer Ian Watkins, and you don't want to listen or buy or, or, or otherwise indulge anything that would enrich this guy while he's sitting in jail. Um, there are stories that Ryan Adams has had a, has had his songs dropped by a number of radio stations around the world. Uh, there was a story that the BBC had dropped Michael Jackson. That's not true as it turns out, but you have to think that there are radio stations around the planet that are thinking, okay, based on the allegations in this documentary, what do we do with this music? 
I wonder about that. Like you personally, is it possible for you to separate the music from what you heard last night? Because I was struggling with that today where I thought, I, I don't, I don't think I can separate those two I, things. I can't, I, I, I can't. If the allegations are, are what they seem to be. Uh, and uh, there is nothing in what, the testimony that we saw last night that would say to me that those guys were lying. Uh, that's it. Um, I'm, I'm done. I don't care if I ever hear another Michael Jackson song ever. I mean, there are going to be those people who say that we need to separate the, the, the person from the arts. But, you know, how can you do that? How can you listen to an R. Kelly song and know, yeah. you know, what he's done? How can you listen to uh, a Lost Prophet song knowing what, you know, Ian Watkins has done? How can you listen to a Gary Glitter song? I, it, it, it applies across the board. I mean, my wife won't watch Woody Allen movies anymore. Yeah, I'm with her on uh, that one. We we can't sit down and watch Kevin Spacey movies anymore. Nope. So it's it's the forgiveness quotient has yeah. has dropped dramatically. I think you're so right. I also think it's not something almost like it's not like something I have to you have to make a conscious effort to do. It's just something you just feel like, oh man, I can't I can't listen to this. I can't do this. No, 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 I can't because every time I, I hear him sing or. Or, or see him dance. I mean, I'm going to think about some of the stuff I saw in this documentary. This this could be, and maybe should be, the death blow to the Jackson estate. Is that why you think they've been pushing back so hard? Absolutely. Um, you know, Jackson will have been dead uh, 10 years ago this June. And in that time, the Jackson estate has turned, has spun his, his legacy into hundreds of millions of dollars of profits. And this is something that they want to keep going, obviously. Because it's a a corporation. It's a giant corporation that depends on a squeaky clean Michael Jackson to be, you know, saleable for generations to come. Um, I'm sure that they had um, all kinds of, of, you know, intentions of making him into the new Beatles in the sense that, you know, people will be listening to his music forever and ever and ever. Uh, I I, I don't think so. Um, It's, you know, if... A lot of his stuff, you know, if it was, the problem is that, he, like I said earlier, he was already weird. And now that's we're what ready I was thinking. Ar- he was never squeaky clean, right? Like he was, no. there was always something, whether it was, as you said, hanging with the chimpanzees or uh, there was always something odd, but we tended to go, oh, because cause he didn't have a childhood himself and it was taken away from him. And then as the older he got, I think we all kind of knew deep down there was something else wrong here. Yes, and, and it turns out that, that we may be right. Um, it's going to be tough to watch part two of this because oh, I can't yeah. imagine getting any, any more graphic. I mean, really, really. Like, if I'm one of those two guys, and I have to say those words out loud in front so of So brave, camera, yeah. Yeah, uh, again, they've got nothing to gain other than to you know, come forward and say, this is what happened to me, and this is what the world needs to know about the King of Pop. I noticed that as well, because I know that part of the Jackson fans out there were slamming these two men, oh, saying that they're just opportunists, but they actually gained more in their lifetime by defending Michael Jackson than they're going to gain by saying this. Yeah, I guess they'd finally preyed on them that they had been lying or at least deflecting, uh, you know, all the charges, and and now they're coming clean. Um, and, and there's even a term for these 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 people who are defending Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson truthers. You know, it's it's I feel that he could not have done this. Therefore, that is my truth. Yeah. And that's something that we see a lot in social discourse today. 
And do you think this is probably the biggest case like this that we have heard of where we're going to be kind of look back now and revise how we felt about and how we feel about that music? Well, it's, you know, he's the biggest selling solo artist of all time, so it doesn't get much bigger than this. However, uh, you know, this could set off a whole bunch of reexaminations of the pasts of, of other people. I mean, we could, I mean, one of the things about the music industry is that it is famous for bad behavior because yeah. bad behavior in many cases would tolerate it if not encouraged. So, you know, we hear stories about David Bowie and, and Mick Jagger having affairs with, you know, 14 year old girls. We hear about uh, Jimmy Page, who took Laurie Maddox, who was 14 years old at the time, on tour with him. We hear stories about, um, you know, Ted Nugent becoming the guardian of an underage woman just so he could have a relationship with her. I mean, it's, there's a lot of this stuff going on. And it's, it's, it's not acceptable. So, you know, how is there a statute of limitations on this bad behavior? Do people get to change? You know, change? Uh, I don't know. So essentially, I, it's going to be up to the individual. Essentially, Alan, what you're saying is that there's probably quite a few musicians and stars out there who, who, who should be a little bit nervous. I think there are. I, I really do think there are. Because if somebody wants to come forward and if somebody wants to you know, pick up the story, you know, you worry too. And I, this is, I don't mean this to be derogatory, but you have ambulance chasing lawyers who may say, okay, you suggested this happened to this guy who are with this guy and he still has a substantial fortune. Well, we should go after him. Right. Or we should, you know, or we should have some sort of out of court settlement. So this doesn't become, you know, a catch and kill type story. Yeah. Given what you heard then last night, what you're probably going to hear tonight for you, does this, is this a fundamental change for you and how you approach the legacy of Michael Jackson? I, I was always uh, sort of iffy on him. Um, and you know, the thing that, when I saw him way back in the day, dangle the baby over the belt. Oh yeah. God, I forgot about that. And that was, I remember that very clearly. I remember thinking, okay, we're done. Yeah. That is so true. I have a feeling a lot of other people are also feeling the same way today, Alan. So listen, thanks so much for the chat about this. Oh, you're very welcome. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction follow continues to be. It will be. That is Alan Cross, a global news music commentator, also host of the ongoing history of new music on CFOX. We're talking about the documentary called Finding Neverland. The first part aired last night on HBO. The second part airs tonight. And I got to tell you, I've never watched anything that actually made me so ill, like just physically sick, listening to the details of what had happened.